Um, if you have a Bible, can you turn to Jeremiah chapter 29? Jeremiah 29. Um, and it's family weekend, and so we thought we'd do a message about um, families and geared toward families. So um, the, the goal is not to like exalt families, but to minister to families of all kinds. And so we hope it'll be a good word for you uh, this morning. Uh, my wife and I got married in 2004. Two years after we were married, we were, um, you know, we were both working and, you know, getting a little bit of money saved. And then we thought, hey, you know, maybe we have enough money we could actually go on like a cool trip. We could, we could go to Europe. Like we had always wanted to do that. And so we kind of looked at each other one day and thought, let's go for it. Let's do it. So we got really excited. We, we um, planned out a whole trip to go to four different countries. And so we flew into Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, on the way, you know, the way planning our trip, we kind of, you know, we were mostly excited about seeing these historic landmarks and places and people would tell us, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of English speaking there, and you can find your way really easily, and it's really geared toward tourists. So we really didn't think in our minds a whole lot about the culture shock that we would actually experience. So when we walked off the plane in Germany, it was like, oh, everyone speaks German here. <laughs> right. We're in Germany. And all the signs are in German. This is great. So how do you say Munich in German? And we had to catch a train to Munich. And so we managed to find our way. We got on this train. And, you know, we found a nice seat. And it was like, oh, okay. All right. We're on the way. And then the next stop, train fills with a whole bunch of people. And it's like, oh, okay. Next stop, more people. And no one got off. And then some lady comes over to us and starts talking German to us. And we were just like, ah, and we figured out she's saying we're in her seat. And so we're like, oh, we are? Oh, we have no idea. There's a sign seating? Like, what's going on? And so we just go and we find this random spot and sit down on the train and we look at each other and we're just like, what's happening? Where are we right now? We're not at home. We're not at home. And it's just like that feeling of we're far from home. We're in a foreign country. Help. And we found that there were these instincts that kind of took over. Um, my wife's instinct, I think, was the flight instinct. So like uh, hide, uh, <laughs> retreat kind of into yourself. So she, uh, sorry, honey, but she, uh, she was just like, oh, survive, survive. What's happening right now? And me, I was sort of like, you know, fight instinct. Uh, they're, they're thieves. They're going to come and steal our stuff. They know we're tourists. And where's your money belt? Put it around your waist and hide it. And like, hey, what are we, you looking at my wife? What are you saying to her? You know, that kind of thing. And then the other instinct that took over for both of us was the fall in line instinct. So like, can you just see a group of people heading somewhere? You're like, oh, they know what they're doing. Let's follow them. Okay. <laughs> These are the, the, the natural kind of human instincts that take over when you're not at home. That might feel a little bit like the sense you get as a Christian uh, living in today's world. Uh, if you haven't noticed, the world has shifted dramatically in the last couple of decades, last few years even. Uh, if you're part of the elder generation or a baby boomer, or Gen X, or even an older millennial like myself, 
We had a very different childhood than kids today are growing up in. We, we had cassette tapes, right? That was pretty cool. Some of you had 8-track, right? You remember when those came out? Um, but globalization is happening. Cultures, worlds smashing into each other, not just like in, you know, borders and things, but through the internet, through social media, through smartphones, hyper-connectivity. Worldviews are smashing together. There's a sense of chaos, confusion. The world is changing. There's, what do we do with this new world? Anxiety is on the rise like you wouldn't believe. Teenage suicide rates are way up. Despair, feelings of, I don't know the kind of world I'm living in. Young people are drawn to like post-apocalyptic literature and movies. Have you noticed that? Those are all the movies coming out these days. Because it, it, it speaks to this sense of like, I don't know how to make sense of this world. And if you're a Christian, it's increasingly a, a hostile feeling place. Like you're just weird if you're a Christian. It's a post-Christian culture here in Canada, increasingly so. It has been for a while, but it's increasingly so post-Christian. So it had a lot of Christian influence in the past. Those days are long gone. And it's post-modern. Uh, post-modernists think of truth very differently than you and I think of truth if you're, if you're a Christian. It's not absolute. It's relative. Truth is, is a very different understanding of truth. It's secular, so it wants to have a kingdom, but no king, a utopia with no God ruling over top. And it's progressive. There's this sense of, hey, we're on the road progressing toward utopia, and you, you Christians are the ones holding everything back as you go to this like ancient book, and like it's 2019. Wake up. You, guys, you ever hear people say that? It's 2019. That's this sense of like things should be progressing. And certainly we can say there are things that have progressed that are really good things. But it's this sense of like we should be progressing toward all these other viewpoints and worldviews that are conflicting with a Christian one. Our sense of home has been challenged, it's been replaced, and we feel more like we're in exile. And so what you see happening in the church and in many families, parents, Christian parents, homes, is there's these three responses to that kind of change and that kind of culture around us. The first response is what we would call that fight instinct. Christ against culture is the mindset. Christ against culture. Um, so this is the instinct to like fight back against the changing times and try to like get Christianity back, mostly through like political maneuvering or things like that. You want to take it back and, and you're incensed that the world is kind of moving in this direction and like it's losing its ground and you want to fight. Zealot style. You know, take over the establishment. The second instinct would be the flight instinct, which we would call Christ away from culture. And that's the instinct to just oh man, let's just, let's just move. <laughs> let's just get away from this crazy place. 
and this crazy world and let's go hide somewhere and like create a little Christian like safe little bubble and like get the kids like safe and like there's things coming at them we don't like and and certainly we want some of that but like we just kind of go and create a little bubble and you know kind of bubble wrap our kids and that's the hermit kind of thing the turtling approach to culture and then there's another instinct and it's Christ with culture and that's the fall in line instinct. And it's just, hey, you know, this is where the world is moving. So let's just go with it. Let's redefine and reimagine. Maybe we've got some stuff wrong here. Let's reinterpret sexuality. Let's reinterpret, you know, some of these, these hot button issues scripturally. And, and we'll, just, uh, we'll just go with where the culture is going and kind of fit Christianity into that. Um, if you were paying attention to the news last fall, there was this interesting story about the United Church in Canada and how they had an atheist pastor. Yeah, I know. Uh, not uncommon for the United Church, but um, it's kind of an oxymoron, right? Atheist pastor. It's an oxymoron. It's like saying jumbo shrimp, right? <laughs> or country music, right? It's, I'm just kidding. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's <laughs> yeah. a good one. I like that one. Um, but yeah, they basically, the United Church decided not to um, remove this woman from pastoring um, because they thought this was, this was, again, progress. This was a way, hey, like we're being accepting to everybody. Atheist pastor. So just go in line. And as you guys can guess, none of these responses are really nailing it in terms of being faithful to Jesus. There might be elements of some of them that are good, but they're all missing something. They're incomplete. They're flawed. So what is a faithful response for us as Christians, Christian parents, raising our children, our grandchildren, our churches? I think you're going to find it very encouraging as we go into Jeremiah 29, we're going to look at a time in Israel's history when they lived in exile. And we're going to look at the Babylonian exile and Jeremiah's letter to these Israelites who are living in exile and his kind of direction for the way forward for them. So a little background for you as we get into the text here. Um, in 586 B.C., the city of Jerusalem uh, was besieged by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And many of the people uh, were taken away to Babylon, to the city of Babylon. The king, the royal family, the elders of the people, prophets and priests, metal workers, craftsmen, officials, normal average Israelites, the book of Daniel... These young guys who were taken away with that, that first group who, who were taken away into Babylon. And they were, they were relocated into a place that was certainly not their home. Now, this is a, a very major event in the Bible. It's a, it's a massive event in the Old Testament. We don't really talk about it a lot. We talk a lot about another event called the Exodus where God delivers the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and he brings them into the promised land through Moses and Ten Commandments, all that stuff. We're very familiar with that event, but this is really the opposite event. It's God removing them because of years of unfaithfulness, idolatry, corruption, oppression of the poor who they're supposed to be caring for, and his removal of them into Babylon. 
Now, Babylon, we first encounter Babylon in very early in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11. And it's this city that God actually, he, you know, right after Noah's Ark, he tells them to go and disperse and like fill the earth. And they say, no, we're going to create a city and we're going to build this, this tower. And they're afraid to go and do what God said. And then they create this place that's basically a symbol to their greatness. They say, we're going to make a great name for ourselves. We're going to build a city that we don't really need God. And from that point on, Babel or Babylon becomes this kind of symbol of the city of man. It's really the quintessential human pride place. And it's a real place. But as you go along in the scripture, you find it also becomes this symbol for the kind of place humans will always create away from God. Humans who are in rebellion against God will create a place, a city. They will imagine a place where they can live without him and they can live for their own greatness. Very secular place. And it was no different by the time the Israelites went into captivity, into exile. In fact, in the New Testament, the New Testament authors use the imagery of Babylon and the language of exile to speak to the New Testament church. Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He calls Christians elect exiles. In chapter 2, he calls us foreigners or sojourners and exiles. And so I think this is a very relevant passage for us today. So let's look at it. Jeremiah 29 verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamaria, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I just want to pause there. Notice how God describes their movement into exile. We could easily look at Israel and say they, they went to exile because they were unfaithful. That's true. And Nebuchadnezzar could say, you went into exile because I beat your God. He actually came into Jerusalem. He stripped their temple of all its symbols of their worship to their God, and he brought it into his own temple to say, your God is defeated, the God of Babylon is greater. But in this text, we read Jeremiah say, no, Yahweh, your God, Israel, brought you here. You're here because God brought you here. Your God's not defeated, he's in total control. He's doing something here. He had to discipline you for your sin, but now there's going to be this new opportunity for them in this new place. And so as we start thinking about what does it mean to live faithfully as Christians in our world today, it has to start not with Christ against culture or Christ away from culture or Christ with culture, but Christ above culture. 
Christ above culture. We have to understand that Christ is always above everything that's going on. He's in total control. Even when it seems chaotic, even when it's not going our way, Christ stands above the nations, above the times. It's no accident the time that you and I are living in. He's brought you here to this cultural moment, to this place, because he is sovereign over you. He's sovereign over your life. And he has a plan. And he's going to execute that plan. He's in total control. And so we start from this wonderful posture of going, our God is not defeated. He is in control of what is going on in the world today. So there's two things I think this text is going to encourage us to do under that understanding. And the first is to build your home and seek shalom. And the second is to remember that Babylon is not your true home. So let's look at the first point in verse 4 again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's the first part of our text. Um, my daughter Lucy, a couple years ago, she... Uh, was running through the kitchen, you know, as kids do, and uh, she tripped over the, uh, the stool in our kitchen and went right into the corner of, like, this wall, going to the stairs, boom, right? Huge gash right on her forehead, and I just hear this massive bang. I come out, and she's lying on the floor crying, and I look at her head, and I'm just like, she saw the expression on my face, like, ah, and she started to panic, ah, and we just, you know, kind of put pressure on the wound, and we laid her down, and me and Jess are looking at each other going, oh, that looks kind of bad. What do we do? I know what we should do. Call dad. <laughs> That's what you always do. You call dad or mom, right? Or someone in your life, whoever that person is. But for us, it's call dad. He knows what to do. We have car problems, call dad. We have a sliding glass door, doesn't work. I should call dad. Because it's nice to know you can call somebody who knows what to do, right? In the situation, the chaos and the confusion, somebody knows what to do. And for us, it's, it's dad. And in this text, Jeremiah is pointing the way forward for these exiles. They're confused. They're chaotic. He's saying, here's what you're going to do, guys. Don't fight the establishment. Don't Don't hide. Don't just fall in line with everything and assimilate to their culture. But here's what you're going to do. You're going to build a home. Plant a garden. Stay a while. And raise a family and grow and flourish in this place. This is totally counterintuitive to like our human instincts in this situation. When we feel threatened, we don't want to do this kind of thing. It's a radical and yet very simple 
call that Jeremiah is calling his believer, these believers toward. I want to look at a couple things in this call. He calls them to plant um, gardens, and obviously that was so that they could have food, and, and, but there's more going on with that imagery in Scripture. Uh, garden imagery in Scripture is a very rich image. It of, number one, it goes back to the Garden of Eden, where everything began, and the Garden of Eden is a place of life and joy in God's presence. And so we have this kind of idea, like God's people have always kind of had this, this wonderful um, sense of having a garden in your area is this, is this sim- symbolic uh, expression of God being with you and of life and joy in your home. Planting a garden was a source of food and life and and flourishing and thriving and growing, and then their families are to grow and thrive and to start to look like that garden. And in case that sounds a little weird, just two chapters later, Jeremiah 31, verse 11 and 12, you guys can flip there if you want to, Jeremiah 31, 11, he actually describes the, the returning exiles, um, and he personifies them like a garden. Here's what he says. He says, For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. This is God's people returning home. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life shall be like a watered garden. And they shall languish no more, Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. You look like a garden, you guys. Plant a garden because you're going to look like a garden when you leave this place. Flourish, grow, create a culture. In other other words, that is life-giving and thriving and growing in this place. Move into the city, create your home there, plant your home there, And start to build a kingdom culture, a redemptive culture, a gospel culture in this place. Then, out of that health and that strength, he then says, and then seek the welfare or the well-being, literally the shalom of the city that I sent you into. And the idea of shalom for the Hebrews is not just the idea of peace. But it's the idea of like completeness and wholeness of life. That they would have fullness of life in every way. That they would grow and thrive and they would spread that to those around them. That they would become a blessing to their neighbors, which was the original call for Israel back when they had a home, but they failed to live it out. They're going to live it out here. They're going to pray for their neighbors and love and serve. That is the way forward, Jeremiah says. It doesn't mean they won't suffer. It doesn't mean they won't be tested. But it means they got to get engaged and make an impact. Peter says a similar thing to the New Testament church. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds... And glorify God on the day of visitation. 
That's very similar to what Jesus says, right? Like shine a light and show your good deeds and they'll, they'll, those good deeds, they'll see them and they'll bring glory to your Father in heaven. So we're to live in our city, in our place, in our neighborhood, doing good deeds and watching out for our own sinful desires so that we can help bring people into a state of wholeness and well-being. We're to cultivate our homes so that they're a healthy place, a thriving place, a place of joy and laughter and love and marriage. And then shine that out into the world. This call really is totally, again, countercultural to our instincts. Our instincts are very different than this. This challenges our fall-in-line instinct by saying, wake up. You live in Babylon. That's where you live, Christian. This place ain't your home. You better get in the game. It challenges the flight instinct by saying, don't hide. Look, go and be a light. Don't hide it under a basket. Go into that place. Be a light there. It challenges our fight instinct by saying, don't panic. Your home can thrive even in this hostile place. The question is, are we living like this today? Are our churches looking like this? Are our homes, our Christian homes looking like this What's interesting is on the worst day here in Canada, it pales in comparisons to the pressures of Babylon. And yet what's really sad to me is that in our churches, in our homes, we're not thriving. On the whole, in the evangelical church in the West, we're not thriving. We're losing about a third of our own kids who grow up in the church. We're losing about a third of them will never come back by the time they hit young adult years. They're done. What's up with that? We're not gaining ground, we're losing ground in our churches and in our homes. And I think it's because we've lost the sense of cultivating a radical and yet simple counterculture in our home and in the church that is compelling to the outside world. That looks radically different than the world out there. We're good at confronting the monsters out in culture. Meanwhile, we neglect the monsters in our own homes and in our own lives. We panic and parent in fear, and we respond poorly to the surrounding culture. There was... a. Uh, this last fall again, 180 pastors who were upset about how things are going in our public schools with curriculum, and they decided to take a stand and fight back, and we're sick and tired of being bullied and mistreated for our biblical worldview and our Christian values, they said. And just the whole tone of it was antagonistic and militant and fight language, we're going to take a back. We have a place at the table. And look, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to influence, but there was just this, this tone again of like fighting against our culture. And all it says to people is like, oh man, you, you hate, you're against us. 
We're really good at going there, though. But Jeremiah could have said, rise up and fight Babylon. He could have said, retreat, flee for the hills. But instead, he says, settle down, build your home here, plant a garden. So do our homes look compelling? Do our lives look compelling to the outside world? Um, Mary Eberstadt, she's a senior fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in the United States. She wrote a book called How the West Lost God, How It Really Lost God. This is her, her, her examination of why there's been a decline of religion in the Western world in the past few decades. And her conclusion was that the popular notion is that secularism has led to the breakdown of the family. But she kind of turns it on its head and she says it's actually more likely that the family breakdown has caused secularism. In other words, the world will look more and more like the city of man and less and less like the city of God if we continue to neglect our homes. That's where the battle must first be won. If it breaks down, our life, our witness becomes very difficult. And many of us in the room, we've experienced this breakdown. We know the pain. And thanks be to God that we can rebuild. Through his grace, we can rebuild. And we can move forward. So how? How do we cultivate that kind of a culture in our home, a life-giving culture? Number one, parents, grandparents, you have to be the example You have to be the example. You have to be a non-anxious presence in your kids' lives. You have to be an example of grace. Two, we need to pay attention to our kids' spiritual development. Like from early up and all the way along, we've neglected things like family devotions, getting in the word with our kids in an intentional, rhythmic way, discipline that deals with the heart and not just behavior. Paul Tripp, in his book, Parenting, said, the foolishness inside our children is more dangerous to them than the temptation outside of them. Do you believe that? Uh, Just this morning, I was like coming here and uh, I saw the light was open in my son's room and I walk in the room and both my kids are in there and there's sin in the room that I have to deal with. And if I'm not paying attention, if I'm just like going my my way, I'm going to miss that stuff. And it's important stuff. And I've got to pay attention. I've got to have those lessons with them. I've got to have those conversations. Pointing them to Jesus. And another question for us is, do we delight in them? Do we see them as a blessing? Are they just a nuisance? Do we delight in our children? Do we just rejoice that they're in our lives and we get to be in their lives and and we want to have fun with them and laughter with them and enjoy them? Three, we got to get engaged in our communities because if we, again, if we just hide in our homes, that's not going to be a good example to our kids. We have to get involved. Get involved in schools. Invite neighbors over for dinner. Get to know people in your neighborhood. Be generous with your time, with your money. The point is, cultivate your home life so you can grow and thrive and make the right kind of impact. 
There was this kid, um, he would come around our neighborhood and he would uh, stay with his grandma for like, you know, a week at a time. And then he would come knocking at all the doors, see like, could he play with neighborhood kids? He lived in a couple towns away. And um, so, he, you know, pretty cool kid. Like for the most part, he was, he was you know, a uh, nice kid. And, and then there was another time he came though and he started kind of taking some liberties. He started using lots of like bad language around these other little kids in the neighborhood. And he starts picking on some of the other kids. And so some of the parents are getting a little bit like, well, who's this kid, right? And so, you know, I had established a bit of a connection with him. And I just said to them, hey, man, like, that's not cool. Like, don't do that. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay, okay. Didn't see him for a couple months. He comes back, sees his grandma again, and knocks on the door. He's looking to play again. And I said, hey, man, how you doing? Like, I haven't seen you in a while. And you still live in, you know, in this town or whatever? He's like, oh, no, no, I, I, I live in another town now. I'm, I'm in foster care. Oh, oh. Wow, dude, I'm so sorry. Like, that's, that's heavy. And then he's just like, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, last time I was here, uh, I, I, was, I wasn't being very nice. I just wanted to say sorry about that. And I'm just like, my heart's now breaking for this kid. And I just got an opportunity to encourage him and tell him about Jesus and like build him up and invite him in and play some video games and have some fun. And, but this poor kid's going through a lot and just what an opportunity to just be a blessing to him in my neighborhood, just from establishing a connection and not hiding away. I'll tell you, my, my instinct is to fight. If I'll be honest, I got off social media this year. It's been the best thing for me. Um, cause I just wanted to fight every battle and, um, it wasn't productive. <laughs> it wasn't productive for me. So I just got off and it's been good for me. And maybe that looks like retreating, but for me, I want to engage in other ways and more helpful ways. Number two, we got to remember that Babylon is not our true home. Babylon's not our true home. Look at verse eight. Let's go back to our text. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Here comes the verse, guys, okay? You know this verse, Christians in the room. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. I will, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. This is a great text. What's happening here is Jeremiah, he is basically saying, hey, look, there's these false prophets. They're the same guys who told you you were never going to be taken away into exile. They're now telling you you're going to go back home really quick. He's like, don't believe them. They're lying to you. You're going to be here a while. 
So he tells him to settle down. We looked at that. But he also says, look, though, God's going to come back for you. He's going to come back. He's going to take you home. He's got a hope and a future for you. And it's not here. It's outside of this place. Now, Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's, let's just look at that for a second. Um, this is the second most popular verse on BibleGateway.com every year. Do you know what the number one is, by the way? John 3, 16. Yay, if you won the contest, good job. I can't hear you all whisper so much. It's like, I'm used to kids. They just interrupt me all the time. You guys listen so well. It's great. But this verse is a really popular verse. Maybe you've seen it embroidered on like a nice pillow or, you know, in a nice like flowery picture frame or it's on Facebook and it's, oh, it's so beautiful. And usually we look at it and we apply it to the here and the now. What career should I do? Oh, man, I was looking at this big house I wanted to buy. It's a little bit of an upgrade. I wonder, wonder what I should do. I should look at my Bible app. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11. Oh, God's got plans for me. In some translations, it says to prosper me. Oh, he wants me to prosper. I should go for the big home. <laughs> That's a word from the Lord. And we apply it to earthly goals and ambitions. And I think you guys can see from the context, that's not what Jeremiah's calling us to. He's saying, you have a true hope and a true future, and it's not here. <laughs> it's beyond this place. In this life, we will have trouble, but we, we don't belong here, ultimately. Hebrews 13 says it like this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's what Jeremiah 29, 11 is all about. That's what this passage is all about. It's calling them to put their hope in the fact that God will come back for them. Jesus will come back for us in the church today. He is coming back. And this should challenge our Christ with culture kind of instinct where we, we really like it here and we're really comfortable and we're living for this world. And Babylon's an alluring place and it's full of temptations. It's full of like great stuff. Like the king's food was offered to Daniel and like, it's offered to us, you guys. Like, we eat pretty great here in Canada. It's a seductive place, a secular place. And there are temptations and systems of thought that need to be resisted and discerned and analyzed and critiqued. And so, yes, you do need to protect your children. But you have to teach them how to critique it and how to analyze it. And so they have to engage with it to some level but you got to show them to not put their hope in it or else this culture will mold them in its image and they will live for this world and not for the world to come. We're often content, though, as Christian parents to raise our children for worldly success and for this life. 
And the way you know you might be doing that is that when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man come into conflict, because they don't always, sometimes you're living here in this world and you're, you're, you're going your merry way with your Christian life, but then there's those points, those tension points. Oh, we got church today, or we got this thing that God's calling us to do, but ah, the sports schedule. And the sports wins every time. I, I mean, I've, I've been in the game a while, you guys. Like, I've seen families, like, completely move away from faith entirely because of their kids' sports. Like, it, it's kind of crazy. And it's sad. But this world is pulling at us, and we have to, we have to put our hope in the world to come. Do you think about heaven do you imagine it? Do you like let your imagination run wild anymore like you did when you were a kid? Kids love talking about heaven because they have crazy imaginations. And they're like, man, that's going to be awesome. And we have just lost that as adults, as grown-ups. We just don't think about it. Heaven, home, Jesus returning and bringing heaven down to earth. Are we excited about that? Are we living for this world? So look, you guys, let's fix our eyes on the promise that God calls us to in this scripture. He says, if you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What a great promise that we can seek God, we can seek Christ, we have hope in him, and that he will return to take us home, to our true home in heaven. Let's pray together. The band can come on up here. Ah, oh, Lord, thank you so much for your word. It's just so encouraging to know how to live in this world, Lord, this crazy world that we're living in, and there are so many challenges. Father, help us to be a redemptive influence. Help us, Lord. Help moms and dads and grandparents here today, Father, to invest well in their kids' lives, in their grandkids' lives. Lord, help them not to react in the wrong way as they go home, but Lord, just to take stock and to patiently assess their home life and their lives and see, Lord, are they making a garden of life? Father, we thank you that you called us to be a redemptive influence in this world. Lord, for those of us who are hiding, God, help us to go out and to seek and save those who are lost. Only you can do it, Lord Jesus. And Lord, help us not to fix our hope on this world ultimately but to have our hope in heaven. We thank you, Lord, that you will return for your people and help us to bring our sons and daughters with us there. In Jesus' name, amen.